Welcome to Here I Stand. My name is Patricia Lord and the script is simple, telling extraordinary stories of ordinary people. Today, I do not have any guests. Today, I would like you to hear my story. I would like to read you something from Pablo Casals. The child must know that she is a miracle, that since the beginning of the world, there hasn't been, and until the end of the world, there will not be another child like her. My story is quite simple. I should not be here. My parents, or my mother, should I say, had a sterilisation nine and a half years before I was conceived. Now, I come from a large family of seven children. I am the youngest. And my mother, a very hard-working Jamaican English lady, um, was very tired of childbirth, let's say. And after giving birth to my brother Fitzroy, the labour was very difficult that she had decided that she didn't want any more children. Now, not many people can say that they know the exact day, time that they were born, but I do. So my dad had turned 40 on the 11th of June, 1972. And my mum, marking this momentous occasion, decided to throw my dad a birthday party. Now, Jamaicans being true Jamaicans, there was rice and peas, chicken, lots of food, but lots and lots and lots of rum punch. So according to my mother, who I think is a very accurate judge of when this happened, my conception happened between 01.42 to approximately 23 minutes past two. So I'm in the fortunate position of knowing that I was meant to happen. So imagine this, my mother, 40 years of age, having had six children, her youngest son being nine and a half, realises that she's putting on weight. Pregnancy is the furthest thing from her mind. She is doing the Jane Fonda workout. She is going to the gym. She is eating minimal amounts of food. She goes to our doctor and he basically says, well, look, you know, your abdomen's very distended. What I need to do is send you to the hospital so that they can run some routine checks. She visits her consultant who tells her to come back in a few days because they're actually going to put mum asleep and they are going to investigate through this superb new microscopic camera. So exactly that happened. Dad went to work, the kids went to school, mum went to the hospital. Now, what I'm not telling you is that the individual consultant that she met was part of the team that sterilised my mother. So mum goes in and uh, goes to sleep. She's really worried because she's absolutely convinced that she's got cancer. And she's woken up by a nurse handing her a cup of tea. Now, for those of my non-British listeners, that's normally bad news. She sits up and she's like, what's the matter with me? She's quite groggy. What's the matter with me? What's the matter with me? And um, the 
surgeon that performed her sterilization he stood there just and looking at my mom basically saying well actually um we do have some news i'm not quite sure how to tell you this but you are pregnant to which my mom took the mug of tea and threw it at the wall lots of expletives followed with the question how the hell did this happen Bearing in mind, my mother has gone back to work, has just about got her independence back, is looking forward to starting full-time work for the first time in about 15 years, is absolutely floored by the fact that she has to start from the very beginning again. Now, immediately... And, you know, without judgment to my mother, she says, I want to have an abortion. Fortunately for me, it's 1972 and women were not allowed, if they were married, to have an abortion without the consent of their husbands. Now, picture this. My father's at work fitting his engines and a policeman runs in to his place of work. You can imagine that the whole assembly line is looking at this policeman thinking, what the hell is going on? They speak to the foreman, who then sprints to my father with the policeman. Said policeman says to my dad, you've got to come with me quickly because the hospital have called and it's an emergency. Knowing that my mother went into a hospital that morning, my father is absolutely panicked and runs like the wind, with this policeman to his car. Blue lights are on. They're driving at speed. They get to the hospital. To the extent they thought it was that serious that the police shook my father's hand and said, good luck, mate, before he went in. Now, dad runs in, sees my mom in bed crying, going, what the hell's the matter? What the hell's the matter? Could not get a decent word out of her for a few minutes. And the doctor stepped in and said, Mr. Moore, I uh, need to let you know that your wife is pregnant. To which my father looked at my mother, slightly confused at this point, wondering how the hell it happened. My mum looked at my dad and said, listen, I can't do it, and was very upset. She was like, I'm tired. I can't go back to the beginning. And the reason why you're here is because I can't have an abortion without your consent. So my dad allowed the news to soak in for a few seconds and he says, you're not going to get it. To which my mum broke down in tears. And the reason why she broke down was not because she wanted not to have a child, but she did not want to go back to not being independent again and having had 10 years of moving over that hurdle and for those of you that have children will know that you know the moment that they're out of nappies and going to school you feel that you regain a sense of self again she realized that she was stuck having this baby and my father sat sat next to her and just said to her look you know I know it's going to be difficult but this is absolutely amazing. This is a miracle. You had your tubes tied and now we have a baby. It's a gift from God. 
and we cannot destroy what God has given to us. And then proceeded to stand up, throw his arms in the air and shout in the room at the top of his voice, I am a lion! And to my brothers and sisters' annoyance and my husband's, I constantly tell them that I am a miracle baby. Now, the purpose of telling you this story is not to tell you that I'm a miracle baby, but to talk about the fact that for whatever reason, I am meant to be here. And there are many of you out there who are most probably wondering what your purpose is. So by sharing my story, I'm going to tell you how I found my purpose. And thankfully, mum gave birth to me on the 7th of February, 1973. So I'd like to fast forward this story to when I was 12 years old. And mum and myself had spent a month in Jamaica over the summer holidays and had an absolutely amazing time. And on the way back, we get on the plane, you know, the usuals occur. You sit down, you buckle up, the flight takes off, the air hostesses come and feed you some food. And I decided to fall asleep, as you do. It was a night flight. And what occurred even now, is so clear in my mind, it's as if it occurred yesterday. Just before I got to that place of complete and utter deep sleep, my mother taps my hand to wake me up. I was slightly reluctant and she smacks it really, really hard. And as I jolt for the pain in my hand, I look at her and immediately I can see that something is wrong. And she squeezes my hand and she says to me, we're going to die, but at least we're together. And I look at mum, completely confused, and I'm half in sleep, half thinking that I'm dreaming. And the captain's voice comes on the tannoy. And it's amazing the things that you remember. He had the poshest British accent that I've ever heard to this date. And I don't know if it's because I've romanticised it. But as he was speaking, I thought how well he spoke. And in a very authoritative way. He tells us, ladies and gentlemen, we have a problem. If you look outside of the right side of the plane, you will see that our, our right engines have caught fire. And as he paused, there were gasps, there were screams, he then cleared his throat because it sounded like he too was emotional. And he said, if you look outside of the left-hand side of the plane, you will see that those engines have also caught fire. And by this point, everybody's screaming. Mum held my hand and she squeezed it tight. And as the captain started to talk again, everybody stopped to listen. It was eerie. He then followed on with, ladies and gentlemen, I have no choice but to crash land this plane. And it was so matter of fact, it was as if he was saying, please buckle up your seatbelts. 
And there were so many more prominent screams that came from the rows in front of us and behind us. He continued, but this time his voice changed. It became louder. It was far more authoritative than before. And he says, I've alerted Miami and Miami are preparing for our crash landing. And within the next two minutes, I will turn off the engines. This is what we have to do to prevent this plane from completely catching fire. Listen to the air hostesses and get ready for this crash landing. Remove your shoes and get into the brace position when instructed. He then paused and we heard the emotion in his voice. He said, we need a miracle. And for those of you that are religious, pray. We need all of them. God keep us safe and God bless you all. And with that, he signed off. And as a 12 year old, to hear that news, it did not register. It was as if I was in my body and I heard what was said, but I wasn't feeling the impact of what I had heard. The hysteria after a few seconds was fever pitch. And I have to say that since that moment, I have a very healthy respect for our air hostesses. They're called trolley dollies. They are not. They are the keepers of our safety when things go wrong. And those beautiful women on that British Airways flight became mini marshals. They had their shoes off, they were running down the aisles and they were screaming instructions to the point that even in our panic, you had no choice but to hear what they were saying and do what was being asked of you. And they were telling us, you know, brace, 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 you know, shoes off, head down. And I will never forget that a few rows in front of us was a family with a very young baby. And our air hostess, she was putting the baby inside the safety belt and was saying to the mother, no matter what, do not let go. And... They ran to their seats, they put their seatbelts on and within three or four seconds, the captain turned the engines off, the lights went out and we sank like a stone and our plane nosedived to earth and it was the most terrifying experience that I've ever had. And the seatbelts kept us from falling out of our chairs. Those of you that are from Jamaica or any other Caribbean island or, you know, even an African contingent. This was 1984 and we were not very good at the whole weight restriction back then because there weren't many. 
and people would bring on lots of heavy luggage and food. You know, there were no restrictions back then. And I remember that when the plane went down, <laughs> all of the food that we had that we were bringing home fell out um, of the overhead carriers. You know, the luggage was on the floor. People were being hit by bottles. It was absolutely terrifying. And my mother grabs my hand and she says, it's okay. You know, this is what she's saying to me again. It's okay. We are going to die together. And I remember looking at her and telling her, Mum, what are you talking about? As most 12-year-olds would. And I said to her, I will not die because I'm going to be a writer like Maya Angelou. And clearly my mother knew, didn't know who the hell she was because she gave me this look like I was absolutely crazy, but completely nodded and placated me because it did feel, you know, pretty gloomy. And as the plane was careening down, there was this noise that I just cannot describe when there's no engines. It, and it is like the movies where you hear the plane going, and people are screaming and people are praying and people are screaming out names. And I closed my eyes because I thought that if my eyes were closed, it wasn't happening. And I heard a woman scream and say, Lord, hear my prayer, save me, save my child. My daughter is too young to die. And as I opened my eyes, it was my mum praying next to me. And I did not recognise her voice because she was petrified. Whilst we were careening to what many of us thought was our death, there was a level of acceptance on that plane. The screaming started to quiet and even the children stopped crying and there was silence. And I just don't know why that happened. And I just think that after the panic set in, there was a level of acceptance. And as we are falling out of the sky and, you know, falling out of the sky from 40,000 feet takes a little while. I completely forgot that on our flight, there must have been about 12 to 15 nuns that came on. And in the silence, I heard the chanting. And it became therapeutic. I don't know what they were saying, but they were definitely praying. And my 12-year-old self started to pray with them as only a 12-year-old could and I was chanting let us live let us live Lord hear my prayer and let us live my mother grabbed my hand because somehow even though we were not party to our fate there was a point as we started to approach the ground 
that you felt the ground coming towards you. And my mother grabbed my hand and I decided foolishly to turn to my right and I could see flashing lights heading towards us so I knew that the ground was coming and as if on cue there was the screams that started again and I don't know how I did it and I think there's an element of me that is innocent at that time you know because I'm 12 and I'm sure that if I was an adult I think I would have felt more fear but I just didn't. I just felt that it was actually going to be okay. And I kept chanting. And as we hit the ground, it felt as if the life got knocked out of me. And for a few seconds, as the plane is spinning and being filled with smoke, even then I questioned whether I was actually alive. And as we hit the ground, our plane started to break and it veered to the left and then slammed on its belly again and then veered to the right and was spinning around and I couldn't breathe. And I realized that the plane actually was on fire. And as we came to a halt, which felt like we'd been put in a spin dryer that we were spinning around so quickly but as we came to a halt panic set in because people realized that oxygen was of a scarce commodity and within seconds of us stopping the air hostesses jumped up they got the doors open and the chute went down and what I'm going to tell you now, even speaking about it to you, is bringing tears to my eyes because I, I remember the fear and it was no longer the fear that we were going to die from the crash. It was the fear that we would burn to death. And as the chute opened, everybody jumped up, everybody was panicked and, you know, we had no shoes on, nobody grabbed bags. It was, we've got to get out. And my mum grabbed me and she grabbed me with such force that I banged my knee <laughs> on the chair trying to get out. And, you know, we're stepping over stuff. And I could see that people at the back of the plane were not prepared to wait and they were climbing over seats to get to the front door and it, it was horrendous. And as we are running to come out, somehow I, I lose my mother's hand and my leg gets trapped between luggage and my dress and I'm trying to climb over and as I try to climb over, I trip and I fall and as I'm going down, I could feel the surge of people behind me and a knee in my back and I screamed to my mother. And I need to tell you that my mom is not a big woman. Well, was, she's no longer here, but she was not a big woman. She was around five foot seven, 
medium build and she ran into that crowd like Jonah Lomu, grabbed me by an arm, hoisted me up and is dragging me. And some faceless hero who I have never remembered to this day grabbed my other arm and hoisted me to safety. And they both pulled me to the exit whereby my mum and my faceless hero threw me down the chute. And as I go down the chute, I'm faced with sprays of foam and thick smoke and a sense of so many bodies around me. And these are the firemen at Miami airport. And as I get to the bottom and I try to stand, I feel these two very large arms pick me up and literally just wrap me round his neck like a pashmina and run with me to a bus with the door open. And I was greeted with medical staff throwing water all over me and, and, and feeding me water because I could barely breathe. And we survived. Lots of people didn't. Lots of people had heart attacks from what we could gather and, and other injuries, but we survived. And like you do, well, not like you do, but like most, you know, ethnic people do of a particular age, and I'm only talking from my own experience from Jamaican parentage, you don't talk about traumatic things, you just get on with it. And I think it's also a sign of the time as well. I think we're all so much in touch with our feelings. If that had happened now, I think everybody on that plane would have received um, post-traumatic <laughs> stress uh, disorder counselling or, or would have been labelled with, you know, emotional trauma. And we fly home the very next day from Miami, which was the worst flight of my life because nobody slept and we were all very wary about the functionality of the plane. So we get home. My mother worked in a local factory at that time and had been there for many years. And she was due to go back to work the day after we, we had arrived. But because we were delayed, as it were, when my father called up to explain that she'd been involved in this traumatic incident, they were told that if my mother did not attend work the following day, she would lose her job. And two days later, I was back at school. And this is just how, you know, Jamaicans are. We didn't talk about it. We never discussed it. We came home, we told the family, my God, this was really terrible and awful. But my mother and I never sat down and to talk about the fact that we nearly died and our plane crash landed and we survived. We never did. So then we fast forward my life to January 2005, whereby my mother has cancer and, you know, got stage four cancer. She's dying and we're in hospital and I'm doing the night shift with her which was not uncommon as we didn't really leave her alone there was always somebody with her 
and we're talking about life, you know. And she looks at me and she says, so are you happy? I was like, yeah, you know, I think I've got a good life. I'm happy-ish, could do with a husband, but, you know, we can't have everything. And she says to me, have you lived your life? And I said, of course, Mum, I've had all these holidays. You know, I've got a great job. I've got amazing friends. I've got my own property. And she says, have you lived the life that you've wanted to live? And I looked at her and I went, Mum, what, what do you mean? You know, are you not proud of me? What, what do you mean, Mum? And I was always, as most children are, I was always the the child, I think, that, that most needed approval. So this conversation kind of threw me. And she goes, I am proud of you. But I never expected you to have a career in law. I was like, really? She goes, yeah, you talked about it. But I never thought that you would go there. And I said, but why, Mum? And she said, because at the moment that you thought that you were going to die, you told me that you were going to be a writer. And in a very thick Jamaican accent, she said, and I don't see no book yet. And I don't come to no, no. <laughs> and I'm laughing. I don't come to no book launch. So... That was a kick in the gut. Because, people, we hadn't talked about this for over 20-something years. And then my mum is recalling this very poignant conversation. And she's right, when I thought that I wouldn't be here, well, when she thought I wouldn't be here, because I was quite convinced that we were going to live. And although I had written, and although... I had written poetry and had performed. I didn't actually commit to writing novels, which was something that I definitely wanted to do. And my mum went on to explain to me that when she came to this country, she was a hairdresser and she was really good at it. And by coming to this country, her and my father made certain sacrifices. And we talk about sacrifice all the time. And it wasn't until we had this conversation that I understood how much they had given up in pursuit of a better life for their children. Because they gave up their dreams and they gave up a huge sense of who they were. And my parents came here in the 60s and became domestics. And, you know, my father worked for the underground and, he, you know, dealing with the tracks and, you know, um, renovating the tracks and things. And life was really hard. But they had to morph themselves into these people and give up every dream that they had for themselves in order for their children to dream. And that has really stuck with me since then because I have had 
the education that they couldn't have. I have had a life that they've given me which they didn't have. And there's a line in one of Maya Angelou's poems that is quite clear in Here I Rise. I am the dream and the hope of the slave. And through my parents' sacrifice, to a certain degree and a very large element of my life, I am free. So it took me a few years to figure out what my purpose was. And so I have a lovely life, beautiful children, beautiful husband. But the reason why I'm here is to write and to be creative and to do podcasts and to recite poetry. Now, I may not make a million bucks. I may not be as famous as Maya Angelou nor have her success. But what I understood from being in the room with my mother was that no matter what we do, it has to give us joy. We, as individuals, need to love not only who we are, but what we do and the amount of time that we spend doing it. So my message to you today is find your purpose. And if that purpose could be turned into a career, then you are going to be successful at it because you enjoy doing it. And if you don't enjoy what you do right now, that's absolutely fine because we've all got to eat. We all have to maintain the status quo. But as I would say, work your side hustle and bring that joy and creativity or whatever it is that you like doing into your every day. And that is my message to you people. Have a lovely day. If you would like to get in contact with me, please visit my website on www.authorpdlaw.com. Facebook, you can find me on Author PD Lord, Instagram PD Lord, and Twitter PD Lord. Currently, I have books available called The Journey, available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, Kindle Books and Ebooks.